Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. When Dominique and I get together, we just have a grand time talking about horses and horse training. And today we're going to have even more fun because I'm down in Arkansas visiting with Cindy Martin. We've just finished up a fantastic clinic, three-day clinic that Cindy hosted at her place. And we're taking advantage of the fact that my plane doesn't leave for another couple of hours to connect with Dominique and have a sharing with the three of us in this podcast. So let's start by Cindy giving people a little bit of your background because I think you bring a somewhat unique background to the clicker training community and a really useful one in terms of just practical training. The what we what what we most of us who have horses want to ride and we want to ride out and we want horses that we can do things with and have fun with and that's really been your riding background you haven't explored the what i would call the esoteric stuff that i've gone delving in great depth into in the nuances of balance until until you until you ran into me and it was this is what we're going to look at because this is my obsession. But you you bring what I find is a really great background. So I'm going to turn the mic to you and let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Alex. Um, I spent many years, I stumbled into the sport of fox hunting when I was fairly young in my early 20s and fell in love with that because you could ride out, you had horses, you had dogs. It was just and in beautiful open country, it to me was just brought together two great loves. And so I spent over 25 years really actively involved in the sport of fox hunting, not an emphasis on the kill by any chance, any stretch of the imagination. Uh, many times we took our hounds out and, you know, we would run a cold trail or something. But um, watching the hounds work as a group, um, getting to know my horses, I started a lot of horses in the into the the field, which is it requires a certain skill set and a certain understanding of horses. Watching the horses learn to, they learned to read the body language of the foxhounds, and they could tell when the hounds had were about to find a, a line that they were going to run before any of the people had any idea. You could feel your horse tense up under you saying, we're going to go soon. I can see that hound is wagging its tail a certain way. So I did come in from a fairly practical standpoint. I, I will disagree with you, however. I did have an appreciation for balance because there's no better, better moment to appreciate balance than when your horse is <laughs> slithering down a muddy hillside Absolutely. <laughs> towards a jump that you need to navigate and you're just hoping that they've got themselves organized well enough to take care of things. And then you're in the air over the jump and, oh, there's a cow on the landing side. And your horse turns in midair to avoid landing on the cow. So I do have a, maybe a slightly different appreciation for balance, but I do have one. Yes, and you can't, you really, every time I ride out, I think, how do people ride out who don't think about balance? You know, you're either on that horse that grew up on really rough land, country, 
and, and knows how to handle his body over rough ground, or you need to be working on that because my goodness, for exact, and, and that's why the work that I look at, which is this nuance of balance, everything that, that sits in the foundation work of the clicker training is good for you fill in the blank on the performance and your horse will go better. So true. And, and really important lesson I learned from all those years that I think helped me really connect to your work is that, that the rider can't, we can't appreciate fully the adjustments the horse is going to need to make to navigate a field that's full of, of ground squirrel holes and, and logs and, and weeds and things that the rider really needs to kind of sit still and let the horse find his way and not try to macromanage the horse and and say I'm going to steer you around this hole just sit there quietly and let the horse see it and take care of it himself and that's you know what your training leads us to is to set the horse up to find his own balance to find his own way to adjust through a turn, uh, around a corner, if he's backing out of a slant load trailer. We want to set up those questions in a really small, simple way so he can learn to manage that himself and not have us trying to usually over-adjust the horse and help him and end up hindering him in the process. So that's, that's one point of connection that I've really appreciated in your work. In a sense, I wish people could see what what Cindy is doing as she's sitting here because of course it, as you're talking you're you're bending as though you're a horse going around a turn and and so on it, it's that whole thing of with riders when you think different you are different when you're thinking about a turn your body is turning which is what we do as riders with when you're an experienced rider what what really helps the riding to work is that your whole body becomes involved and you don't even begin to you don't think about it so cindy how how did you um get in touch with clicker training and alex's work well before we get to that and we'll come back to that dominique but there's also cindy's um strength as a clicker trainer is not just with horses but also with the dog so you you didn't just watch the foxhounds you managed them right right the kennels so right i i took care of the hounds a fair bit and I was sort of supervising the people that did the day-to-day for a period of time so yeah it's it's pretty phenomenal to you know take 35 dogs for a walk off leash I bet. <laughs> just to watch their interactions because they live together as a group and they're trained together as a group and so it's very different than the individual pet dog in somebody's home in some ways and in some ways of course there's a there's a lot that crosses over but it does give you a different perspective and we bred our own hounds so we had multiple generations of hounds there so we could see sort of what tendencies passed down through the generations we could see what variation there was within a litter of hounds you know you have eight nine ten hounds and you could see you know which ones were the ones that could really get in there and find the difficult scent, the ones that could that weren't maybe great at that, but they were better at sort of just running and pushing on when the scent was good. You could see the hounds that you know really just naturally looked to their huntsmen and their handlers for direction, and the ones that 
that were a little bit more independent. And, and so all those little nuances that help you start to look at animals and appreciate the individuality, their individual behavior. Yeah, so one of the great strengths that you have is you have a great deal of experience with the horses, you have a great deal of experience with the dogs, and bringing those two training worlds together and letting one teach the other in terms of as you're looking at all at the various training approaches to dogs and understanding the behavior of dogs and doing the same with horses, I think that is one of the great strengths that you have. So how did you, well, now we'll ask Dominique's question, how did you stumble across clicker training? What brought you to clicker training? Well, I read an article in Equus magazine in 1999 where they interviewed you. Okay. And I think part of it was they mentioned your first book, Clicker Training for Your Horse. And when I read that article, because I'd always done the things that I was told I needed to do because I loved horses and I had fallen in love with foxhounds and I did the things that I needed to do to manage them and train them and make them behave. And I always did it with a great deal of reluctance. That wasn't the way I really wanted to interact with my animals, but it was the way that the culture and everyone around me told me I had to. And so when I read that an animal could eagerly and willingly work with people, that an animal, that there was a way to train them so they could want to participate and not participate just to avoid consequences. I didn't know anything about learning theory at the time. I didn't know anything about behavior science, but that appealed to me. So I'm going to get emotional here. Yeah. It, it was, it was a, a life-changing moment for me. And I bought Alex's book. I read it. I ate it up. I was so excited. I ran out to the barn. I found an old bleach bottle. I held it up for our Percheron cross named Burley. And I clicked and treated him and got him to target and then I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't figure out how to apply it in our everyday world other than a bit of husbandry work. So over time I got a couple of Alex's videos back when they were on VHS and I watched those and I learned a little bit from them and then I couldn't figure out what to do next. And But it helped me over the years with a lot of things. I used it for trailer loading, I used it to desensitize horses to clippers, I used it to remove sutures from the eyelid of one of our horses after his eye had been cut and the vet had sutured him up. It was time to take him out. And I just went through, you know, can I touch your face here? Click and treat. Can I touch it there? Click and treat. Can I touch with both hands on either side of your eye? Click and treat. Can I have an instrument in my hand near your eye? Click and treat. Can I snip that? Great. Click and treat. And so I used it for day-to-day -day things, but I didn't use... I didn't fully embrace all of Alex's work. So it was there in my back pocket. I loved to use it where I could, but I wasn't super imaginative about how to apply it. And I couldn't figure out how to take Alex's work into my day-to-day -day, day -day work of you know, conditioning horses for hunting and taking horses out hunting and things. But I always had a few treats in my pocket and I would slip them to my horses you know, here and there when I could and when they got on the trailer and things like that. So you started the clicker training with the horses first, not the dogs. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I will say that has influenced, I think it's been really beneficial for me um, as I moved into dog work. So 
in the midst of all this, I started to really, I made a, a decision at one point to really embrace clicker training. And I, I contacted Alex and asked her to come out and, and teach a clinic where I was living in California. And we had a couple of clinics and, and I was learning so much. I was really excited about it. And I said to Alex, you know, I need to do something more. I, I want to become a really a better clicker trainer. And I was looking at different options, which were all dog based. I mean, I had really, when I decided to embrace clicker training, it was because I had a very challenging horse, right? We all have that horse or that dog that brings us to this, really brings us to it. And he was fearful. He was reactive. He had physical issues. And all of the solutions that were available in the horse world, they were an approach that, that I, I just couldn't stomach. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. Like you with, with your dog, Dominique, that you, you talked about. You didn't want to put a shock collar on your dog, Dominique. That's right. And I didn't want to round pen my horse. He'd already been round penned, and he was not too happy with it. I didn't want to flag him. I didn't want to tie him to a tree. I didn't want to... You know, I, you know, tie his nose to his tail. I didn't want to hobble him and throw him on the ground. I mean, all these solutions that were that were being presented and and everything that you have to get his respect and you have to be dominant and he's trying to be dominant and all these things. They just they just made no sense to me, and so I went looking for solutions in the dog world because the dog world was so much hmm. further a few years ahead of applying positive reinforcement and behavior science to problems. And so I started following some dog clicker training lists and, you know, reading what they were doing. And that led me to looking at some of the materials of some dog trainers who were really working on behavior problems, Leslie McDivitt's Control Unleashed program and a few other ideas. And I said, you know, I've got to get further into this. I've got to get better at this. So I ended up enrolling in the Karen Pryor Academy dog trainer program. I remember emailing a, a friend of mine who's also a, a horse clicker trainer and has had dogs all her life and said, I lost my mind and I've enrolled in KPA. So I went through the KPA program and... Was that before or after you'd worked with Porter? That was... That was during. That, that was, was during. that was after I had already really... So really you all, you'd gone up to Washington to see... I went to one of your clinics in 2006 to see if this was really where I wanted to go. I was blown away by the work the people were doing. It was beyond anything I could have imagined that people were doing with clicker training. And you had us do some Tai Chi human balance work, and I found that really interesting. And you came over and you did the little, uh, had me do the little flexions with my head and tried to show me how small they were supposed to be, and that was very eye-opening for me. And then I, you came and did a couple clinics. I worked with Porter. We made some big improvements for him. And Porter, we should say, is he's he's a thoroughbred that you bred, mm -hmm. but he's a, a head shaker, a true head shaker. So he has a neurological condition that creates some real behavioral problems and where you have to keep his level of stress very, 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 very minimal. And even the stress of solving a puzzle that is fun so having fun can be stressful. stressful right and and you know I made the best choices for him that I could at the time in terms of how he was started um, what kind of riding work I did with him and things but it it 
when I would ride him after about 10 minutes, he would leap in the air, all four feet up, land on all four feet, dive his nose down and rub it really vigorously on his leg, and then raise his head back up, straining as high as he could, and his eyes would, the whites of his eyes would be showing, and his whole body would be really, really, really tense, and then usually he would bolt. Great. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So... Yeah, I can imagine sitting on that. <laughs> yeah, I am proud to say he never got me off. Mm. But i that's where I was at when I said, I've got to find some solutions. And so I started to go look, look at things. I said, okay, I'm just going to go back and do clicker training. I was using Alex's work. And even so, he was still stressed. We, I would you know, slide down the lead rope, we would walk along, he would grab the lead rope and clench it between his teeth. And you could see his whole face sort of vibrate. And finally, it got to the point where if he, I had one, I was taking some lessons with somebody, I asked her for a solution to a problem. And the solution she offered just melted him down. He just he devolved into a 35-minute fit of head shaking, just standing there, flicking his head up and down and up and down. I couldn't take the tack off of him. I couldn't lead him anywhere. He was just, it was it was almost like a seizure. It wasn't a seizure, but it was like that. I mean, he was just detached from the world. And he settled down. I put him away. And the next day I walked out, and I was probably 50 feet away from his paddock, and he saw me, and he started head shaking. And I, I... Hard not to take it personal. <laughs> I, I, I just turned around and went in the barn and cried. Mm. And I said, I have to, I have to start over. Mm. So I just went back. I walked to his paddock. I held up a target through the, through the gate. I targeted him five or ten times, left some treats in his bucket, and walked away. And I just went out and did that with him every day until the point where he saw me coming out and he ran to the gate and waited for me. And then I started to go in the paddock and do the same thing and then just leave. And then I went in the paddock and said, can you target? Great. Can you follow the target? We'd do a little of that and then I'd leave. And part of his neurological issue left his whole body sort of hypersensitive. So he, if you touched him, he, he would react he just was very incredibly sensitive at the time. So I worked my way into targeting, following the target, stroke my hand on him a little bit, and leave. And and I do, I want to emphasize again that this is was not a behavioral just uh, issue. There is a physical, neurological cause for this behavior. And yes, you can intensify it through what you do, but underlying the behaviors you were seeing is a physical condition. So people understand that. Yes, because you, you had ridden many, many horses, and it was the first time you had a horse like this. Yes, and I had, I had his mother, I had his half-sister, and there was nothing like this that went on. And you'll, you'll smile, Dominique. So at one point, I was talking to a veterinarian about him. It just came up in conversation. And I said, you know, have you ever dealt with a head shaker? And she says, I think I had a client that had one. She just put a tie down on him and, you know, went on about her business. Hmm. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, if I had put, you know, a martingale 
on Porter and just tied his head so that he couldn't throw it up and down and around, he would have, I think he would have imploded. Mm. I think he, it, it just, it, it, it trying to suppress that, mm. uh, to me, that just felt criminal. And he was, he was actually diagnosed. I took him to UC Davis. There was a vet there that is sort of a recognized expert, which doesn't say much because there isn't that much information out on head shaking. And he was evaluated thoroughly. It was a five-hour exam. They went over everything and concluded that he was what they call an idiopathic head shaker. So there was no clear, he wasn't triggered by UV light. He didn't have seasonal allergies. He just head shakes. And, and they, they postulate that the nerve in the face, the nerve, trigeminal nerve in the face misfires. They don't know how painful it is, but it feels maybe like a zinging, like, you know, a tingling nerve or something. Hmm. So when Alex came to teach her first clinic at my place, all these people came. It was wonderful. I was delighted. All these people came out of the woodwork that were dying to work with Alex. And we had this great clinic. And my session was the last one of the day. And Alex said, well, let's see what you're doing with him. And I brought him out and I, quote, put him through his paces. And I pushed his buttons a little bit. And he started head shaking. And Alex went, hmm. And all I did was like ask him to back up and ask him to come forward with the lead rope and things. And Alex said, well, your food delivery is good. Your timing is okay. Your rope handling is very nice, which was nice to hear since I had been just working from, you know, her DVD materials and things. And she said, so, you know, I don't think that you are part of what is contributing to this. So my sessions at the clinic were, could I rest my hand on his, my palm, one palm on his forehead and one palm under his chin? And could he stop shaking for a nanosecond while I did that? And if he could, Alex would click, I would feed him, and then I would walk slowly away from him. And if he walked to follow me, Alex would click again, and I would turn back and feed him. And then I would place my hands on him again. And we had done that for a little bit in the first session, and Alex says, okay, now see if you can stroke your hand down his neck. And I did that, and it was like I had hit him with a cattle prod. He jumped away from me and started head shaking. He was that sensitive at the time. Wow. So I spent the next 18 months just going back, like I said, go to his paddock gate, have him target. I figured out with him what was really important was to find this, find a successful starting point, move forward from that in teeny tiny increments, and create a really clear routine so that it was really predictable that so every time I went I would go and I would start the same way we would target outside with me outside I would come inside he would target we would follow the target eventually then I would put his halter on no lead rope attached we would target we would follow the target then I would attach the lead rope we would target we would follow the target with the lead rope on I would stroke my hands on his body, and I would do all of that. And he was much worse as soon as he left his paddock originally. So I would open the gate, do all of those activities, and not even leave the paddock. Then after we'd done that several days in a row with him being fine, being calm, being able to take his treats gently and quietly, I would walk him three steps out the gate, target, go back in. 
three steps out the gate, target, go back in. Close the gate, leave for the day. Go back out, repeat that the next day, and go five steps out the, out the gate. I mean, it was this, this horse, he really taught you about slicing things down. He did. And, <laughs> and about watching him and watching for the earliest signs of any emotional dysregulation. Mm-hmm. And so he is, I call him my Yoda. He was my Yoda. Oh, yeah. And he's still my Yoda. And, and so Alex came back, I am proud to say, 18 months after that first clinic when I couldn't even stroke my hand down his neck. And I went through our routine and I brought him out. We went into the arena and we, by that time we'd been doing the why would you leave me exercise and working on flexions a little bit and of course, he came out of the out into the arena and went. There's 11 people in lawn chairs sitting at the side of my arena. Should I be concerned? And I said, No, we're going to go to the other end of the arena and we're just going to target for a minute. He went, Okay. So we did that, and then I said, Now we're going to follow the target. Now we're going to work closer to the people. Now we're going to target near the people. Now we're going to go to our cone circle and do our thing. And he kept very relaxed, very emotionally regulated. He could do everything. There was no latency in him responding to his cues. He took the treats gently and quietly. And after about, I don't know, it had to be like 15 minutes, I called that. Alex hadn't said a word. And I said, you can, you know, you can start instructing anytime here, Alex. And she says, I can't believe it's the same horse. I don't have anything to add right now. Because every decision you were making every choice you made for him was a good choice so i'm at your skills were in place and i was just watching the way i watch all uh experienced teams of what are the choices that this person is making for this horse and they were all good and as porter went around the why would you leave me circle he floated into a beautiful beautiful lateral flexion and and he was it was gorgeous it was there to be had he was soft he was relaxed it was not the same horse that I had first met so that that's that's how I became a behavior junkie (laughs) (laughs) that's how I became a behavior geek and and then I just wanted more so I went into KPA I Finished KPA. I didn't. And KPA, you have to train a second species. And they sort of said, you can't, you shouldn't be doing a horse. You already train horses. So I trained our barn cat as my second species. And I went. And your first species was a bull terrier. A 12-year-old bull terrier named Scarlet. And she was, she was great because she was very different than most of the dogs there. So she challenged me. She challenged my classmates when we had to train each other's dogs. And I'm proud to say we were the, she was the first bull terrier to graduate her human through the Karen Pryor Academy program. So I became a Karen Pryor graduate certified training partner. I still am. I maintain that certification. I'm proud of it. Um, it's a great network of people and it's a really good foundation. And I went through before Ken Ramirez was the the chief training officer for KPA, but it, it, it was a good experience. It learned, I learned a lot 
it helped me bring a lot to my work. But one thing that was wonderful about it that you'll appreciate, Dominique, is at one point I said to Alex, you know, I'm learning a lot in KPA, but you prepared me for it really, really well. Mm. Like, there were no holes in my education. It just refined what I had already learned from Alex. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how old is yeah. Porter now? Porter's 19 now. Okay. Do you ride him? I haven't been riding him. We have a, so many other horses. Mm-hmm. I did start back riding him, and he was doing pretty well. Um, but we've got enough other horses that mm-hmm. he he really he's kind of happy being a pasture buddy to um, Burley, the first horse that I ever held a target up to, who is now 27 and very retired. And they're buddies, and they hang out together. So if I ever get enough time, I will probably start to go back and play with some of this with Porter. But he he he's really enjoying. We we moved in. We have a lot of pasture and space here, which is I think really has been really healthy for him. He does a lot more walking and moving around, and um, so you know I'm certainly someone who doesn't think that every horse needs to be ridden i know that sometimes we hear that you know in a barn that oh this poor horse nobody ever rides him sometimes i think the opposite (laughs) when i look at some of the riding sometimes i think oh if i were a horse perhaps i would rather be a pasture buddy to someone like porter but uh, i think some horses can have very very good life and lots of interaction with their humans without necessarily being ridden Yes, exactly. And one thing I did teach him when he was still very sensitive, you know, you'd always see these videos of these these trainers and and they're usually, you know, negative reinforcement based trainers. And they would and here I'm rewarding the horse and they'd slap their hand on the horse's forehead and rub it really vigorously. And you'd look at the horse's expression and think, I I'm not sure the horse is really thinking that's a reward. I know. And and so instead with Porter, and, and also because he really was uncomfortable being touched for a period of months, and I can tell you there were times when I was first starting, I call it starting over with him, with the targeting and, and going and working with him at his pace and everything, that he we'd make a bit of progress, and I'd just, I'd be so excited inside, I just wanted to explode, and I wanted to just fling my arms around his neck and hug him. Hmm. You know how you have that, like you love your dog and you just want to, you know, hug it. And I would be like, I can't, I can't hug him. It's too much for him. He can't take it. I can't do it. I'd have to just contain myself. So I decided to teach him to target his forehead to my outstretched palm. So I'd hold my hand out a bit the way people think of a traffic policeman, you know, holding his hand out to stop traffic. I taught him to target his forehead to my hand, and he lives most of the time in a 15-acre pasture, and I can go out, and if he's in sight, and I hold my palm out, he will come trotting over mm. from whatever distance, and just gently, and he'll slow down when he gets close to me, and then just come up and rest his forehead against my palm, and it's that's a very, it's a very endearing way for us to connect. Mm-hmm. So we do that every day, and he loves that. 
Yep, and you and you taught it to Rosie, your your beautiful mule baby, and and she does the same thing, and it's also very endearing when she does that. So you started. Uh, so you were hosting clinics that I was giving. So you, when you were out in California, you were uh, hosting the clinics. And then when you moved here to Arkansas, once you got settled here and got the arena built and so on, we resumed the clinics. So we have these great gatherings twice a year at your place. And it's been a treat for me because we get to share in the teaching and I get to hear the the way that you help people understand this work. And you're also incredibly active on the internet. You're so generous in the sharing of your experience, your your readings, your your understanding of dogs and horses and learning theory. And and I'm especially when I'm flat out and and I'm traveling and there's not time to field some of these questions that are popping up in the various forums and and there you are with the perfect answer, and I'm always so appreciative of that. And and so over the years of doing the clinics, there have been some ways that you have of explaining some of these concepts to people that I just find are really powerful, which is one of the reasons, Dominique, that I wanted us to have this conversation together. So now that we know a little bit more of, of what brought you to clicker training, so one of the one of the ones that I really love is the way that you talk about a very common label that's in both the horse world and the dog world, which is dominance. There's the music. If you've been listening to these podcasts, you know what that means. I'm going to interrupt our conversation at this point and end the podcast here. Next week, we'll continue on from this point. Cindy will share her perspective on dominance as it is used in training, and she'll also explain how MP3 players can help us understand why it is so important to teach a broad repertoire of behaviors. I hope you'll join us. For once, we don't have any upcoming webinars to announce, so we'll just wish you a happy holiday season and say goodbye for now.